0: Amy Trainer, I'm the current president of HEMS Louisiana. I'm super excited you guys are here. Wanted to give a quick plug about some of the things we're doing this year. One, being trying to host an education session every month. Thanks, Steve, for being here and hosting our cybersecurity uh, session for this month of September. In October, we will have Dr. Charla Johnson. She will host and discuss nursing informatics. That'll be on Friday, October 7th at noon as well. Um, in October, we also have two social events, the first being on October 14th at the New Orleans Rock and Bowl. Um, that is from 6 to 9, and it's on a Friday. In Lafayette, we will also also host at Rock and Bowl. We're calling it Bowling with the Board. Um, that will be on Thursday, October 27th from 6 to 9 as well there. Um, we do also have GC3, which is our conference for Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi, we are lucky to host that in Baton Rouge this year, and that is at on November 16th through 18th in Baton Rouge at the um, at a downtown hotel there. We will continue to share that information via newsletter. Um, if you need more information, please reach out, and I will give Steve all the time because he's got such great topics. Steve, thank you for joining us. Steve is the COO of um, IS at Ashner Health. He leads the cybersecurity team, the technical team, and our operational uh, leaders in each region. Um, we are really excited to have him, and I know you guys will enjoy what he has to say. So thank you, Steve, for uh, joining us today. I know uh, there's a lot of time out of your busy schedule, but I appreciate you being here.
1: Oh, no, sir. my pleasure. My pleasure. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. I'm going to share my screen. I need to, I think you might have to, whoever the host is might have to enable screen sharing for me.
0: All right. All,
1: this, all these security concerns out there in the world. They just all right. right. Let's see. Advance. One participant can share at a time. And I probably have, I don't know, somewhere around 25 to 30 minutes worth of presentation and figured I have about 10, 15 minutes if people have questions. So. All right. Steve, I think uh, I did it. I think you got me. All right. Great. All right. So, as Amy said, I'm, I'm Steve LeBlanc. I'm the Chief Operating Officer of the Information Services Division here at Oshner. Um, and I'm going to bring you through uh, basically 10 cybersecurity concerns. That I think uh, folks in healthcare, frankly, a lot of folks in other industries as well, should be worried about. So I'm going to jump right in and uh, show some stuff. Hopefully, everybody can see my screen, okay? Um, so, number 10, one of the first things I think that any leader needs to make sure is that they're appropriately funding their cybersecurity team. I wouldn't put some metrics here uh, that I use uh, personally, use here to make sure that OSHA is appropriately funding our organization. But making sure that you have the right funds, you're spending in the right places, is key for a successful uh, uh, cybersecurity program. Um, one of the things that is challenging is if you don't have dedicated cybersecurity professionals. I think a lot of organizations still might not have a de- dedicated cybersecurity team. It really is difficult to have a robust and effective security program without dedicated professionals. You know, a few years back, um, you know, when I first started in IT, uh, information security was always like part of the network team's responsibility. We're really past that now. The, the types of attacks are far too sophisticated for just the network team to be focused on. Um, and the level of risk to an organization, you know, this is no longer about a virus where you, know, you download new, new definitions and you can be back up and running in a few hours. Nowadays with ransomware is our key risk that we look for um, to avoid in the organization. Um, you, know, you really can be down for weeks and or months um, and, and the risk is just too great to not have dedicated personnel. So the first things I, I, you know, always did, you know, whenever I go to any organizations, make sure that you're appropriately funding the organization. That is the C-level's job. So if you have a chief information security officer, and everybody should have a dedicated CISO, um, make sure that they're making sure that the program is resourced appropriately. Uh, I imagine we'll get these slides sent out if you want to borrow some of these metrics here, but these are some of the metrics I use, you know, being, you know, number of staffing and our overall um, budget amounts, so. Number nine, uh, and this has got to be my favorite cybersecurity cartoon ever. Uh, number nine is whether our end users are knowledgeable. Um, I put on here, you know, a couple of things that we do. You know, we have mandatory cybersecurity training. If you don't have that in your annual education package, I also, I also put the uh, HIPAA regulation that actually requires us to um, have education for our end users. So I put that there so, you you know, you uh, If nothing else, you can blame HIPAA if you need to roll this out in your organization But making sure you have a dedicated cybersecurity education. Uh, Also, you notice I have in there new employees and orientation need to be covered. You know, we do about 30 minutes or so of education covering computer usage and, and passwords and whatnot. Um, something we're actually looking to expand and make actually more robust, but we should be making sure everybody in healthcare is doing orientation uh, for their employees around this. And last but not least, and this is something that I think gets overlooked the most, is the periodic information sharing. We put out, um, you know, sort of every month or so, there might be some sort of bulletin that we put out from a cybersecurity standpoint. Uh, We also use our uh, periodic phishing testing as reminders. So when people click the report button and they report a phishing test, one of our our spoofed phishing tests that we do, um it actually will give real-time feedback to our users of, hey, you just did the right thing. Um, I also think that you've got to be able to make sure that you educate your information services personnel more regularly. We cover it a lot in our um, team meetings. We'll bring up examples of things that we have done. Um, Last team meeting, I I believe I had actually brought up a really good catch to one of my uh, employees. Um, He had done some work and helped somebody and then something didn't feel right about it. And he actually alerted our cybersecurity team. And it was just a great catch. You know, it was more about his gut instinct. Um, And he alerted cybersecurity team. We stopped a a problem from happening, which was great. But it's making sure that they're knowledgeable and that you celebrate those things and recognize that for the good work that it is um, and and create that culture. Um, That is key you know, into having any effective cybersecurity program. You know, there's, there's a saying I've used a couple of times is cybersecurity is too important for just the cybersecurity team. It's everybody's gotta be part of this and making sure your end users are knowledgeable um, is, is one of the most important things you can do. You know, the social engineering, the stats on that are actually pretty scary from the companies that I've hired to do different penetration tests for um, our organization. They're a hundred percent effective. So a hundred percent of the time they will get somebody to hand over their username and password, uh, some of the oldest tricks in the book. Are, you know, they'll show up like an old old IBM badge or something, and say, "Hey, I'm an IT." See the IBM badge, and people will see something like that, like an IBM or a Dell badge, and say, "Oh, they must be with IT because it's a computer." Um, and some of those are the old tricks. So we try to make sure people know um, that they're willing. They're you know, it's welcome to challenge us. We actually enjoy being challenged as IT professionals. So I make sure you educate your users on that too, to challenge people. If you don't know who somebody is and they're carrying a computer out of the building, stop them and challenge them. I see some of our IS colleagues are on this phone with us on this presentation. And I can assure you, we love that because we know that you're looking out for like the bigger problems that can happen that makes our job. A lot easier. So please make sure that if you you can challenge IT professionals if you don't know who they are or if someone wants access, make sure they have an appropriate badge. So that's how education creates that culture and creates that environment you want to stop bigger problems from happening. Um, this here, you know, slide I talk about the multiple layers of defense. You've got to have multiple layers of defense. There's a, a recent breach that just occurred that I'm aware of where they had one very effective layer of defense. Um, and they had relied on that one very effective layer of defense. And they ultimately, um, you know, were breached because somebody got around that one layer. You've got to make sure that you have multiple layers uh, of defense, that you know what they are. Um, and do you have a methodology that you you adopt? Uh, we use NIST here Aschner, Um, So we follow the NIST methodology. There are other ones out there. But the, I have run into IT professionals who still don't have a clear methodology that they follow. I believe you have to pick one and you've got to measure yourself by it. And the last thing I put on here too is key performance and key risk indicators. So we've developed those. On um, the next slide, I'll, I'll get into that in a little bit, but making sure you have key performance indicators of how you're performing along your program, and then key risk indicators of you know, what is predictive uh, and may be able to indicate in the, likely, uh, the likelihood of an event happening and or your ability to recover from it. Um, there's lots of different graphics that show this layering effect, This is one that I came up with a long time ago and I still use. Um, On the left-hand side, I tried to show the different layers that these um, technologies operate at. Um, And then on the the top, you can see the NIST methodology of identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover, which is the different domains of the NIST um, cybersecurity program. So you can see the different tools that you have to have in place, and you can see where they live in the domains um, and, and what they basically protect. So, for an effective cybersecurity attack to get through, you want to make it so they have to get through as many of these layers and as many of these protections as possible. When you look at like, um, I have a presentation I've done for um, for Ochsner called like the anatomy of a ransomware, like how it happens. It's not one thing that they generally do. There's there's five or six things they have to get around in order for it to be effective. Um, and you so you got to make sure that you have those different layers in place and that you know what your key performance indicators and key um uh, risk indicators are so if you look here, all those ones that I just put the little uh, meter on, those are all uh, tools where we report metrics on to the board regarding our performance um, in those areas, as well as um, our risk indicators. Certain things on risk indicators are things that you can extrapolate into the future. So for example, in your backups, if you know you have 100% of your servers are backed up with a recent backup, that's a good key risk indicator on your ability to recover um, your servers, right? Um, so if you have 50%, of them um, backed up uh, a recent backup well then you that's a good way to to extrapolate forward that if you are the victim of a ransomware event and your backups are not compromised you actually will still lose 50 percent of your data Um, so that's the difference between a performance indicator and a risk indicator but those are the ones that we um, have settled on and report um, to the board on Um, number seven do you talk to your board about cybersecurity? So I go to the board every quarter. We have a, a subcommittee that focuses on the board and cybersecurity is the first item on the agenda every quarter. It has been that way for years now. Um, and you know that's just the culture at Ochsner. We focus on cybersecurity uh, fairly heavily compared to most healthcare systems. And um, it's just something you need that oversight and you need an engaged board. When we first started this, I remember one of the things I said to my colleagues when we first started reporting to the board is, we're going to achieve a level of success is when the board members start asking us questions that stump us. That, that's when you know you have a really engaged board. So if they're asking questions and you don't know the answers to it, that's because they're thinking about it, they're getting involved in it, they're they're engaged with it, and, and they're researching it and pe- peppering you with questions, that's a good thing. So, I know most folks tend to not want to be in front of a board and not have all the answers, but that's not a bad thing. You have to look at that for what it is, which is a fully engaged and supportive board. So, make sure you're giving them those updates. We do do an annual presentation. Frankly, it ends up being more like biannually because the board likes to, the full board likes to know how we're doing in this. So, we tend to go a little bit more than once a year, but um, a minimum of once a year, you should be doing a cybersecurity update for your board on your program, where your program is focused. Um, how it's aligned to your NIST methodology and or you know whatever uh, methodology you settle on Um, but you should be presenting those things and explaining how you're going from where you are to where you're going to be the interesting thing about cybersecurity, I think uh, anyway it's interesting is the landscape changes constantly and so as you try to move forward the target moves with you right you're always on this 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 journey to try to get to perfection and perfection continues to move because more threats come out more problems. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, bad actors out there get very creative as well. And so it's interesting in that you have to keep moving forward, um, and showing progress, get, trying to get to this, um, goal of, of truly being protected in all ways. Number six, are your IS um, security staff properly trained? So do you allocate funds for training each year? This is an area, you know, um, you know a lot of times training tends to be one of the, the first things they get cuts of budget. budget times we at auctioneer have actually done really good in this area of keeping our our funds intact but we've also been creative about it one of the things we did for example if you um one of the the main cybersecurity uh certifications out there is the c-i-s-s-p is a is the name of it and we actually instead of trying to send one person to a boot camp which was like five grand for one person we have the instructor come on site i think i paid 12,000 or something like that. And we had like 12 people trained. So get creative and bring those instructors on site. I remember when I first you threw it out there, the company wasn't willing. They wanted me to send one at a time to the boot camp. Once I told them I'd work to find somebody else, then they very quickly became open to coming on site. And I think we got seven people, their CISSP training. I think I believe we sent 12 people to the training and we got seven people got their cissp certification so get creative around that partner up rent borrow talent um this is something i don't think people do um, enough of but how do you partner with the other healthcare organizations in your region or or even you know throughout the country to get their good ideas to find out what they're doing how can you learn from them and how can you borrow their talent presentations like this, people love to do this This sort of stuff. So how are how are you reaching out to another healthcare uh, organization and saying, hey, would you guys be willing to present on your privilege access management solution and how you implemented it? Uh, people love to share that sort of stuff. So don't try to you know do this yourselves, partner up and, and get real creative with it. One of the things that we did um, actually was the FBI in our region, when the, the new leader came in, um, he actually asked about maybe partnering up to do a cybersecurity event, and so we did this, you know, uh, Louisiana cybersecurity event, you know, uh, hosted by the FBI or hosted by Ashner, but but for the FBI here at and uh, Towers in downtown New Orleans. We had a really good turnout. I think we had like 40 or so people show up from different um, organizations in the region. So we went out and invited sort of the the 50 biggest companies and and a lot of them actually showed up. So things like that you could do. They don't cost any money other than than the lunch I think we provided. But a great opportunity to improve the overall knowledge of cybersecurity in your region, um, as well as create great connections that will help you. So get creative. It doesn't have to cost a lot of money in this space. Uh, Number five, um, two-factor authentication. So you know, there's a there's actually an FBI agent who's pretty prevalent in social media. This is one of his big things that he talks about all the time: is just have two-factor authentication on (laughs) if you're remote access. In this day and age, people are expecting it. You you can get past the change management needs in order to get to this as an organization. So I mean, I think I sign on for two-factor for my Netflix account. I sign on for my Amazon account. Like everything's two-factor nowadays your healthcare organization can implement two-factor if you haven't already. So make sure that you do this. Um, your privilege access, what that is, those are the people who have the privilege accounts that like can install software and do things like that. Um, you're making sure those people don't write down their passwords can still be a, a problem. We uh, recently had an issue on, in our area where I actually hired a, a red team, which is like a team of, of um, actual hackers, you know, um, ethical hackers to um, test our defenses. And one of the things they found was some of our folks with with privilege access we're still writing down their passwords in their OneNote files um so making sure that people know that that's one of the things i actually think i have some of our cybersecurity team on uh the, on this presentation but we're having a, a meeting coming up for all of the people in the organization who have privilege access to make sure they understand that it's not just best practice it's requirement that's another thing i would say to folks out there a lot of times we communicate things as like best practice and we have to start communicating Um, what's required and when it comes to privilege access you gotta be very clear on that and so that's where we've said before like don't write down your passwords right everybody knows that yet here you have people who know that and still do it so we have to tell people now as language has to change it's too important not to to get serious about this so we have to tell people it's not that it's best practice to not write down your passwords you're not allowed to write down your passwords (laughs) so making sure people understand not the responsibilities that come with with, uh, the privilege access um, and the last thing I put on there, too, is, is the difference between two-factor and multi-factor. Um, I ran into this in an organization that actually, uh, another organization, not Oshner, not but they actually got um, defrauded of a bunch of money. And one of the, the first things they were saying, I asked, do you not have two-factor authentication set up? And they said, yes, they do. And I said, well, what are you guys using? And they basically were using you know, username and password, which is something you know. And then they were using uh it was number uh, like an amount of a claim or something and that's also something you know that is not two-factor that's multi-factor um and so multi-factor is actually not as secure as two-factor two-factor is there's three main things it's something you know something you have something you are so we all have done on the phones the whole you know uh, two-factor text message thing that you get that's something you have with your password something you know so you want to make sure that you have two-factor authentication. Um, and something you are would be like biometrics, like fingerprint finger, uh, scanning or something to that effect. Make sure you have those two factors, not multi-factor. That red team that I hired um, you know, was actually able to answer multi-factor questions for one of our uh, employees. It took them about 30 minutes of going to Google to figure out what football team they liked, what the name of their pet was, wh- wherever those things are. Um, so they actually figured them all out within about 30 minutes they figured out that those person's questions so just shows you how um, insecure the multi-factor can be so um, this here is a graph this changes every year this is the 2022 year so I love to show this mostly for the the shock effect that you get we've shown this to our board as well Um, you know this gets into like the the password uh, you know if your passwords properly set up for the, the the times that we're um, I think you can look here. Uh, most people have somewhere between eight to, to 10 character passwords, I believe. Um, but if you look at eight character passwords with uh, a full, um, full complexity, I think it says 39 minutes is what it says there. So if you find what your password is on this chart, the number of characters on the left and your complexity in the top, you can actually figure out how long it will take um, for a brute force attack. One thing that you should know um, is given enough time, all brute forces are, are successful, given enough time. And so that's that's the key words there. So you're, the part of the game here is you need to pick um, a time that isn't <laughs> realistic for, for the hackers. I'm at a 13-character password. So if you look at my 13 characters with full complexity, I'm at 202,000 years for my be brute force. Um, and so that's what I would tell everybody. Also, make sure nobody uses their passwords other places. So if you're using your password at Amazon, don't be using it at work. My work password is truly unique. I don't use it anywhere else. So the, there is no other place it could be compromised. Um, with the red uh, red team that I hired here for Ashner last year, that's one of the, the things they did. They went to look at the uh, Equifax breach or whatever it was. They found someone who used their Ashner username or Ashner email to sign up, and they used that password. They said, "I wonder if this person would use that same password at the Oshner. Um, And sure enough, they did. And so, those are the things that that you gotta make sure is make sure it's unique only to your organization, and make sure that um, that it's complex enough. Just because your minimum requirements are eight doesn't mean you have to choose eight. You can choose more than eight. Um, So, and and nowadays, like I said, I think you know um, most of my passwords for my banks and all those they've gone up to twelve characters now. So, I think we're at that point where you can go up to twelve characters. Um, we're at um, 10 characters at Ochsner, um in, in this organization, so, um, but that's where we're at. So, um, you know, just telling everybody, you're at that point now where you can get over this change control. Will people gripe about it for a week? Yes, but after a week, you won't hear about it. So just execute on it. Um, oh, I meant to mention here, you know, the red team, too. They did some brute force attacking um, as well. And on one account, uh, once they were able to uh, brute force attack it, it was an eight-character password, it took them 55 seconds to uh, brute force uh, and, and figure out that password. Um, during their time um, here um, doing their, their job, they were not able to do um, several of their goals, which was um, good. Our cybersecurity team stopped them in their tracks pretty quickly. Um, but from a brute force um, standpoint, they were able to crack somewhere around 8,000 passwords within a matter of an hour. Um, so again, there's tools out there that can do this. Um, you know, you gotta make sure that uh, that you have the right um, rules set up. Number four, are you getting the most out of your tools? Um, a lot of times in IT, we buy a lot of different tools and there are times we're not getting all the value out of our tools. And I know, um, like I think, I think I see Sharon on here and, and some other folks, and think Corey's on here, they've probably presented to me a couple of times. They know, I love to see our tools. But more importantly, I love to see how adept our team is at using them. So when we have an, an EDR tool, an endpoint detection and response tool, I'll actually say I want to see a demo of it. And then I'll throw a curveball at them. Um, and, and some of them that have been working with me a long time know this. They will demo it and they always choose the person who knows the tool the best. And I'm like, great. And then I say, who else knows this tool? And it'll always be like sort of like, well, Fred's kind of learning it. And then I'll always say something. In effect, great, let's schedule another meeting. From a month from now and fred this time you get to take me through the tool and so do that you know pressure the team a little bit as much as they may dislike that it's really about making sure that we know how to use our tools we know how to response um, you know that, that we're taking action when people see things on it and it's not just a great tool that people are not necessarily looking at Uh, fun fact and and depending on where you look at at your 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 stats it might change a little bit but most people that breach an organization they're on your network for more than 160 days before they actually like um, will launch their attack so you've been breached and they're doing their work for quite some time Um, and that's probably a lot of times it's logged somewhere it's popped up somewhere but no one's looking no one's necessarily taking action on it so make sure that you guys are um, and then the last thing I put on here as a bullet too, is the servers and endpoints um, patching. We do a really good job here at Ochsner, uh, you know, which is great. Um, I'm a metrics person. You can see behind me uh, here, a lot of metrics on my wall. So I'm a metrics person. The team reports metrics on patching to me every month. And we're really big on making sure that we patch things. Another fun fact, 61% of all hacks exploit a vulnerability that is known and a patch is available, but not applied. That's sort of the, the, those three things. It's known. It's available patching. No one has applied it, and 61% of um, ransomware attacks um, are, are take advantage of that. So just patch your stuff. 61% of, your, of attacks will be thwarted. So uh, make sure you're patching your systems. I, I think we had one AVP. He actually quoted a vendor who was trying to sell us something. The vendor was dancing around whether we could or couldn't patch the system. And I remember he. he sort of just cut right through the chase and he's like, make no mistake about it. We will patch these servers. So like, if your software doesn't run on it, then you're the wrong company in this day and age to, to sell to, to Ashner. So if we can't patch it, you're the wrong company. We're no longer, just going to like trust people will be doing the right thing and, and not patching uh, and, and, you know, not become a victim of it. So number three, Do you know who you share your data with? This is one of the hardest things. We've been tackling this now for probably 11 months at Oshner, making some progress, uh, but making sure, do you know where you share your data? Um, A lot of times when you set up these data sharing arrangements, uh, there's a good reason for it, but is it documented somewhere? Is it checked periodically? You got to be able to check that because, believe it or not, you're more likely to lose your data from someone you share it with that they're going to get breached than you are, right? And so, if you're sharing with 61 different organizations, your risk is much greater than just yourself your organization. So, if someone gets does get breached, how quickly are you can be able to figure out what data you even gave them? You know, do you know what you gave Blackbot or do you know what you gave SolarWinds or or, or one of these other companies that might have gotten breached recently? Do you even know what they have of yours? Um, you need to be able to answer those questions quickly and respond quickly. So making sure that you have an inventory. So, you know, we have inventories of FTPs and interfaces and VPNs, and we actually have um, are working on the attestation piece now. So making sure you have an inventory and then making sure you're periodically doing minimal data sharing. Um, not, you know, not to, to, to pick on anyone, but sometimes when data files get sent, way too much data gets sent. People sort of send everything and let the receiver pick what they need. Those days are gone. You need to make sure you're only sending what they need uh, and, and making sure you're eliminating it on the front end, not the back end. So make sure you don't send too much data. Um, next, and this is probably, you know, this is number two but I, I, I on this list, but I, I dare say it's probably one of the most important things. It's, do you know who has minimal access? Who has privileged access? I talk to some organizations where every single employee can install software. And this is the problem. When, you know, most attacks, 90%, 91%, depending where you read, it's always in the high 80s or 90s, 91% of attacks start with phishing or involve phishing um, um, for employee credentials and or using the employee's credentials to install software. If every employee can install software, then if anyone clicks on a link, a malicious link, it will install that malicious software. That's like a huge problem. So I've talked to organizations who still allow everybody has privilege access, everybody has what's called like local at local administrator privileges to install software on their computer. Those days are gone. You really can't have that anymore. You need to have people requ- request an assistance from IS in order to install software on their computer. So here at Auctioner, we don't let um, people have privilege access unless they need it. Um, I myself don't have privilege access. <laughs> I can't even install software on my computer. Neither can Laura Wilt, our CIO. And so we limit it um, very much. We have less than 1% of our users have that ability. Um, all of those people, we have them do um, annual attestations of why do they have it. So we know everybody who has it and why do they have it. Um, so making sure that they they know that. Um, We have two-factor for all privilege access now. So when you log into privilege access for servers and whatnot, you have to do two-factor authentication even when you're on the network. That's a requirement nowadays for cybersecurity insurance, just about. So um, so making sure that you have that on there. And then we do weekly reviews of our domain admin accounts. I threw on there the HIPAA um, regulation there that actually requires you to review user access um, in case you need to justify that. But for our domain admin accounts, we know all of them. We know why we have all of them. And then we have our cybersecurity team check every week, just do a cursory review, look and make sure nobody has created a new domain account. The domain admin accounts are the keys to the kingdom accounts. So we have a limited amount, um, but those people can do anything. And when you look at those cybersecurity uh, or those um, ransomware attacks, that's what these people are ultimately after. They're looking to get a domain admin account because with that, they can change everybody's password, they can encrypt files, they can read other people's emails, you can do anything you want with it. So um, so do you know how many domain admin accounts that your organization has? Do you know why they're all there? Because some people, I know I worked with one company, they had an account and it was a, a legacy employee and they weren't even really sure why they still had it. They were just afraid that legacy employee had used their accounts for server setups. Uh, but after some discovery, that They never did that. It was just this domain admin they were just keeping there from employee who didn't even work there anymore that we could turn off. They just weren't sure so they kept that active. Can't be in that situation. You can't have keys to the kingdom that are just sitting there for anybody to pick up. Um, and last but not least, on this, your sanction policy for employees who do not do the right thing. This is always a sensitive topic um, in all organizations because nobody likes disciplining employees. Um, But I did put in the HIPAA requirement that requires every organization to have a sanction policy for people who don't uh, comply with your cybersecurity and privacy um, uh, uh, procedures and policies. So you're actually required to have a cybersecurity-like sanction policy. Um, And um, in this day and age, no matter how good a person is, if they're going to continually put the organization at risk by doing the wrong thing, um, you have to have some sort of disciplinary steps. It's just like if they're doing something else wrong. It's, it's, it's every bit as severe as that, if not more. So we, we ha- you got to get to the point where you're able to take action. Our sanction policy basically points to our uh, disciplinary policy and says that we will follow it, with the caveat that for IS employees, that the sanctions are actually a bit more severe. Uh, for the privilege access, I should say, not IS employees in general, but those who have privilege access. So if you have a privilege access and you install software, you cannot. Click phishing emails. You cannot do these sorts of things, um, or the disciplinary action. You, you can lose that privilege access, and thereby rendering, um, you know, you might not be able to do your your job. So you gotta make sure that you have a sanction policy for your employees. Um, and and if you do have someone who's doing, you know, the wrong thing, you you gotta address it because um, it's it's just too too important in this day and age. And last but not least, I put on here number one is: Do you test your plans? Um, you know, we do tabletops with our executives, which is always good. If nothing else, it's fun to watch the panic in their eyes when you describe what it looks like when you might come in and have no phones, no computers, no medical record, um, you know no anything, and you literally can't even access email or share drives. Like what would that look like? Have you talked through that with your executive team? Um, so we do tabletops. We do 12 a year, I think is our goal. Um, we do different ones with like X amount with operations, X amount with leaderships, X amount with IAS leaders. Um, we do drills as well with the information services team. I actually have a drill later on today for our alternate email um, system. So we have an alternate email system at Ochsner as well so that we could spin up very quickly for attack. So today we're testing that and actually going through how do we actually set that up for 20,000 employees in a very short period of time? What does that look like? How would we roll it out? Like, you know, that we're going to find out here at two o'clock today or three o'clock today, I think. So um, so we've had this in place for a little while. The team has worked on it. And we're going to take a look at what it looks like. Um, phishing tests are a no-brainer at this point. Most people have those in place. But do you have data and do you share it? We have what's called a multi-clicker report, where you can see all of our phishing tests that we've done. And you can see who has fallen for the phishing emails. Um, I, myself, have fallen for one phishing uh, email, which is... Super embarrassing because I oversee the program and I actually get to see what those emails look like about a week before they go out. Somehow, I also, moving too fast, clicked a link in an email. It happens to all of us. But do you have eyes on that? Do you know who those people are? We had one person who um, had privilege access um, and was the victim of every single phishing email that we sent that person. They clicked the link. Can't have that in these days. So we need to know who does that and need to address those issues. Um, we no longer have that issue anymore. That person doesn't do that, so that's good. <laughs> and last but not least, the red team um, as well. So we have um, red team exercises annually. I know some of my cybersecurity folks are on here, so they're seeing annually and going, "Wait, we're doing that again?" Um, yeah, so we do that every year. Um, and the red team is, like I mentioned before, it's a, it's a ethical hackers that you hire to test um, and try to penetrate your network and see what they can do. Um, and so, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, sort of a saying I, I got a long time ago you train like you fight. That, that's, that's how this is. And, and this is a great way to do that. These folks come in and it's like a real attack and your team responds. Um, very proud of how our team responded last time um, we did this. Looking forward to the next time uh, and seeing how we respond as well. So, making sure that you hire someone, that they're competent, and they test the things that you believe are protecting your organization. You know, if you've been an is leader a long time I, i've been in is a little while you know, a lot of times you have tools you think are going to work and then when you go to use them it wasn't set up right or we don't know how to use it or whatever the case may be so you gotta you gotta test these things you gotta drill and, and you gotta um you know make sure that when the day comes you are ready um that is my top 10. so i will stop there and stop sharing and I'm i'm all yours for questions or comments Thanks, Steve. Does anybody have questions for Steve?
0: I have one, Steve, if if that's yeah, okay. By the way, th-
1: there's questions out there. Just I'm, sure I'm
0: sure they'll pop up. Um, yeah. Which right, well, of the 10 was your most surprising, I guess I would say? Like if you thought about this two years ago, would you have put this one thing in your top 10 that it's in there now?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the hardest thing was the sanction policy work, you know, because that that just it gets like HR involved. It gets a lot of people involved pretty quickly. So that was the thing that, frankly, took a very long time um, because it just, you know, people don't no, It's not a fun topic. Nobody's in a rush to put in a new disciplinary policy and roll it out. Right. Um, and so I think that was that was the one thing that was the most surprising thing it was difficult because I thought it was just like write a policy. It's going to take me an hour. I'm going to show it. Everybody's going to be like, yeah, let's do it. And then we're going to implement it. And it really turned into about 15 months worth of work and meetings. And then people forgot about the meetings. And you had to rehab the meetings and all that. That was probably the hardest thing, I think, um, that, uh, on that top 10 list that surprised me. And I wouldn't have put it probably as an important thing, but I do believe it is important. So
0: That's good. I mean, I guess anytime you have to work with a different part of the organization makes things a little bit slower and harder to get done, right? So that makes yep. sense.
1: Absolutely. Let's like Sharon put something on there. How do you get buy-in for the changes you need as an organization? I'm wondering if you'd say the board and executive engagement is the main factor. Um, Sharon, yes, absolutely. Like having their buy-in is uh, super supportive Um, and the ability to have them support moving to 10 character passwords and not give you a lot of grief is uh, extremely beneficial because, you know, sometimes things top down work very well. I mean, I've seen a lot of top down initiatives that don't work very well, but some things when it comes to cybersecurity top down works fairly well. Um, And a lot of times you just have to remind people because people forget, like, look, I mean, my Netflix password is probably 12 characters and has two factor authentication, right? Like, so if Netflix where really, all you could probably do is watch movies. I don't know what else you could scam me out of there. Maybe buy some movies on my account. Like if they're taking that level of cybersecurity, why isn't a healthcare organization? You know, we're gone to those days where a seven character password without complexity is okay. Um, And so once you put it that way, you just say like, it's, it's, you know, it's over. And as much as like people like the gripe, it truly is only a week. I swear after a week, no one even thinks about whether how long their password is. You know, they gripe about it and then they move it on. So um so just you'll know, be used to it, sell it and and execute, you know. So um, we've been very lucky that our board and our leaders, like our CIO, our our chief compliance officer, they're like more supportive of being more stringent, which is really good. Cause whenever you're like, well, I don't know if we should do this. Like, oh, I think we should absolutely do this. And so they're very big on rolling those things out, but um, but it's not always the easiest thing in the world. Um, there are some things we do like that sanction policy, which was just harder, um, but but we ultimately got there. That's why I put the HIPAA regulations in there. Blame HIPAA when in doubt that's the healthcare way, right? So blame the HIPAA regulations. <laughs> so, um, Mark put something in here. How do you manage contractors and other entities that name domain access? Yes. Um, So Mark, a couple things on that one, a lot of times people ask for access they don't need. So they need access on a server. They need server privilege access. They don't need domain access often, right? So we try to make sure we use system accounts for where we need a system account and we give them just access on that. Then we also have attestations. I, they used to be every six months. I think we shorten every three months where someone, has to, someone internally has to attest that the contractor still works there. And we no longer just take attestations anymore. Cause we used to take just like, if Steve LeBlanc said, yep, yep, they need access. Well, I Googled a few people who people said need access. They didn't work for the companies anymore. So we took that away. Now we need something from the company on company letterhead or company email or whatever that states, Steve LeBlanc does still work here. We need that from the sponsor. So the sponsor now has to say, here's proof that person still works at the organization. And yes, they still need access. So that's what we do every three months now. Um, and, and we don't have a lot, we have a lot of people with privilege access, like local admin access or, or admin on a server group, um, but but not necessarily a lot of domain. We only have 14 domain admins, so um, we don't we don't have a lot of uh, folks with that sort of access. We don't give people that access unless they really need it. So, Does that answer your question, Mark, hopefully? I'll trust it did if you're silent. <laughs> Other questions? Looks
0: like Dr. Sarkar has one.
1: Hey, Dr. Sarkar. Uh, First of all, thank you for organizing this and and thank you for that talk that was uh, is really illuminating. Uh, So as someone on on the clinical side, you know, there's this growing desire and I would say even need to apply machine learning and artificial intelligence. And so that requires, uh, you know, ideally agile access to data. And I think that's something that Oshner has a lot of and could leverage. Uh, as well as, you know, potentially applications uh, to to really uh, maximize uh, those tools. So, you know, those 10 things, if we did all of those 10 things, is that sufficient to allow for agile use
0: of machine learning in a healthcare setting? Or uh, would it require more, you know, rigorous kind of restrictions? Uh, and, you know, there's a cost there as well.
1: Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I did a presentation one time. I loved my title of it. It was titled innovation is not supportable. Um, and what I meant by that is you can't give people like a standard laptop, a standard, this a standard, that, and then be like, be innovative. Right. And like Dr. Sarkar, I think when, when, you know, you've been working with the innovation team a long time, I've been working here a little while too. When I first came on board, I remember they were like, they want a gaming computer. And my team was like, they can't have a gaming computer. It's not a standard. I'm like, we taught these kids are innovate, get them a gaming computer, right? Like, so you can't give the standards and only be like the standards The standards we and only be like the standards we have. Yeah, so, so you have to be able to like have a bit of that. So what we've done a lot, and you know this um, in your work, we try to give people a sandbox they can play. It. So what is it, like what, can, what protections can we put around your innovation area and make sure that you're in there and playing with toys that won't necessarily cause us a problem if they do uh, get briefed so if we can't have all of our protections in place what can we have and how do we protect ourselves you know from everything from like you know anonymized data uh being in some sort of playground area where people are playing around with it like what can we do to make sure that we can still innovate but have some protections in place so but it is a cost you can't have like i always tell people the perfect cybersecurity setup just disconnect the internet and all these connections to external things you just be you're perfectly secure, right? Well, that isn't realistic, right? So it's a, it's gotta be a balance. The same thing goes with innovation. If you don't want any innovation, well then maybe you can you can be all about your standards, but you have to be able to bend on your standards in order to allow for innovation because there is a cost as an organization for not being able to innovate, not being able to stay relevant in, in an industry. So yeah, absolutely. Hopefully I answered your question. We got another one from Corey. How do you end up vendor remote access? Every vendor, yes, yeah, seems to use a different solution. I agree. Um, so, you know, what we try to do is we try to steer them toward our solution. So, you know, sometimes they have their solution. Uh, and this is where, depending on the size of your healthcare organization, you have a lot more bargaining power. You know, in Oshner, we tend to have a lot of bargaining power. Um, and so we tell, we tell people how they're going to access, not necessarily have them dictate to us. So if they say, well, we need this, this, this. We, we, well, why? you know, we have a team and we'll just sit down and say, what do you need? Why do you need access? Because everybody says the same thing, right? They want a permanent VPN with a domain account and our domain admin account. It's like, no, no you why, No one needs that. Like, you know, why, what are you trying to do? What do you need? And then we tailor their access to what they actually need to do with like a discovery call. And so I, I, we have what's called an um, ATR process, application team review. We have a SharePoint questionnaire and a, a, a repository where all applications go through this review process our cybersecurity team and our architects are involved in that. People answer the questions and then you come to a call and then they'll go through all your answers on your questions, sort of validate some things. And when it gets to remote access, they'll ask them, ferret out all those questions and ultimately scope and remote access for what you actually need, not what you say you need. Um, and you know, I, I, like I, some of the phrases I've used in this the, the first 30 minutes I would repeat, you know, I say things like gone are the days where you get to do, it. like gone are the days where we won't patch service, gone, you know, gone are the days IT doesn't talk to the customer, those are gone, you know, we talk to our customers now. Um, same thing here, gone are the days when you allow anyone to connect to your network any which way they want to, like those are gone. Now, you as a responsible IT leader, you need to have remote access, right? You need to have a way for your customers to get to the solutions. That's your job to create that mechanism. And once you create it, you steer people toward that mechanism. You don't let them dictate it to you. So hopefully that helps you. Other questions?
0: I don't see any more, Steve. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Um, Thank you all for joining we are happy to have you guys in Louisiana Hams. More to come throughout the year. Um, if you have questions, please feel free to, to reach
1: out. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you all. I appreciate taking there. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.